Today, Emeritus Professor Jerry DeGroote of the University's History Department discusses his thoughts on the standard of history research today, what motivates him to write books, and what he'll miss from his time teaching. Enjoy listening! You're listening to Insight, the University of St Andrews Student Physics Society's podcast. I'm your host, Samuel Avery. Join us as we journey into the lives of St Andrews academics, discovering their passions, inspirations, and motivations. Okay, so today on Insight, we're sitting down with um, Emeritus Professor Jerry DeGroote from the School of History here at St. Andrews. Thanks for joining us, Jerry. Thank you. So can you tell us a bit about your positions here or recent positions? Maybe? Well, I was, yes, up until uh, September of 2019, I was a professor of history um, in this uh, School of History, and I had um, spent virtually my entire career at St. Andrews. Uh, I came here in 1985. Um, I I didn't think that I was going to stay all this long. Um, I I went up through the the usual kind of ladder. Uh, I started out as a temporary lecturer and then became a a permanent lecturer, then a senior lecturer, then a reader, and then a professor, I think around um, 2000. Yeah, I think that's when it was. Um, and now uh, I have the glorious title of Emeritus Professor, which I'm not quite sure what that means, um, but I guess it's, it's, it's supposed to be impressive. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure either, but that's what's on the website. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. so where did you study your undergraduate degree, and, and what was your path to coming to St. Andrews then? Well, I, um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm American. I, uh, I grew up in San Diego. California. Um, I then went to a small liberal arts college uh, in uh, Walla Walla, Washington, which is Whitman College. And that's where I did my uh, BA in history. And then I worked for um, a couple of years in insurance, um, uh, being a claims adjuster, because I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do next. And I then decided that I would come over to, uh, I would go and do a PhD. In those days, you could go straight from a BA into a PhD, which is much less likely uh, or uh, not a very logical path today. And um, so I decided I would go to, um, well, I didn't really decide I'd go to Edinburgh. I went to Edinburgh because Edinburgh was the only place in Britain that would have me. And so I did a PhD in um, at, in history uh, on the First World War at Edinburgh, which I finished in late 83, and then I spent one year doing a bit of uh, temporary teaching at Edinburgh and then got the job here. Nice. So could you tell us a bit about your research then? Is it all World War One? Well, it started out um, World War One. I. I started out as a British historian, and I thought it was quite impressive uh, to be hired as an American to teach British history uh, in the 1980s when there weren't very many jobs at all. And I've always felt that that was um, a a kind of an indication of just how cosmopolitan Scotland was back then. Um, uh, And I had every intention to to remain as a British historian. And then um, I got back in touch with um, 
a, a woman who I knew when I was a, um, an undergraduate, um, who I always rather fancied, and she lived in California. Um, and uh, this was in uh, 1990. And I decided that I would spend a, um, a summer with her at, um, at Berkeley. And um, it didn't make sense to go to California and study British history over the summer. So I decided to, um, to start studying something um, that, was, that could only be studied at Berkeley. And that's how I got uh, interested and involved in um, the 1960s, because the 60s in Berkeley were, of course, a hotbed of political activism. And so uh, that's, that's what I did. And so since that time, I've kind of become a more sort of American British historian, more an international historian. Okay, so right across the pond then. Yeah. Um, and what's your favorite thing in or about your field of research? Um, I would say my favorite thing about my field of research is I, I love being a, what they call a contemporary historian and studying events that I actually lived through. Um, that's, I mean, when I first started uh, studying um, the Great War, there were still people alive that I could speak to about what that was like. But it wasn't something that I had a direct memory of, of course, because I was born many years after the war. Um, but the, one of the great things about studying the 1960s and 70s and 80s, as I did toward the end of my career, was to, was to kind of discover that things I lived through were not really as, uh, did not happen like I perceived at the time. Was it quite a jarring difference? Yes, very often that, that you'd find that, that um, things that you thought you were sure about uh, when you actually looked at how they actually transpired, um, they didn't transpire that way at all. They, uh, they took a, th decisions were made for reasons that you weren't remotely aware of at the time. So you sort of got a bigger picture view of things. You get a bigger picture. You also get a sense that there were players involved that you didn't really realize. Um, I mean, I think one of the, one of the um, most profound examples of that was when I, I wrote a book on, on um, the moon mission. And I lived through that, the excitement of it uh, as a boy. And I, I never quite realized at the time just how cynically political the whole thing was. Uh, and that was uh, unsettling, fascinating, but also unsettling. So you've also mentioned to me that in some ways you find it difficult to justify the study of history as compared to other subjects like maybe science with a more tangible real-world impact. So could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, I, well, I find that I suppose this is a bit uh, of the kind of disillusionment that comes with age. Um, and when I kind of started out, I was really into the whole idea of pure history. And, uh, but as I got older, and I suppose um, a, a few things started happening, I got in, um, uh, I, 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 I built these acquaintances with uh, scientists. Um, I also recalled that when I was young, I, at my first love was of science, and I wanted to be a mathematician. Um, and, uh, and so I have, I've always been attracted to the kind of practical side. I've also been attracted to the idea of producing things, things that change the world in a, 
in a very easily identifiable way. And history um, didn't seem to have that for me. And, and very often um, I, was, I was confronted with the dilemma that if we don't really um, learn anything from history or we don't, we don't learn um, to correct our mistakes, um, then what is the use of it all? And then that would, I think, got compounded by the rather esoteric uh, research that uh, was increasingly carried out by my colleagues. Um, I felt that we were losing sight of the big picture. That, uh, and this was partly a result of the sort of, uh, you know, research and um, enhancement framework, and, the, and before that, the RAE. Um, and there was this uh, emphasis upon producing uh, rather small uh, and, all, and, and very often arcane kind of history um, uh, that was really only understandable and, and um, of any kind of interest to a very small group of people. And so I, I began to wonder what the point of it all was. Um, and so that kind of disillusionment set in toward the end. And so that's sort of a view that's developed over your career then. It's, it's, yes, yes, it did. You came in with different um, ideas. And, and I think I... See, I think that in, in academia, we, there is such a great emphasis upon research, and there is, and, but it is a, it's a science-based model of research, which is all research is, is good because it opens up, you know, um, new horizons, et cetera. And I think that works fine for science, but I think that if you if you um, translate it to the arts, what you end up doing uh, is you overemphasize this idea of research, um, and uh, you get you end up as you have now you get you end up with uh, a lot of people producing a lot of research of of rather questionable uh, worth and merit. Um, and I think that, it, I think it also relates to the whole question of, of, of teaching and what historians have to do. My, my own feeling is that history is, is really only of any, any value if it is communicated um, and communicated to the public in particular, communicated outside academia. So do you think the issue might be then that if history research has merit because you can communicate it, then we have too many things to communicate. You're sort of down all these back alleys of history and it's, you're not able to, not enough people are able to take that in mind when they look to the future. That's part of it. And uh, it's also, I think, even more so the fact that these um, uh, historical researchers who concentrate on rather obscure, rather tiny, uh, highly focused topics um, also tend to be the kind of academics who uh, don't perceive any responsibility to communicate um, outside, at least other than simply talking to other arcane um, researchers like themselves. So they really need to so be they, more of a connection with the public. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. And you've said there's you've said also to me that there's no such thing as a historical truth. So what what do you mean by that then? Well, I, I suppose in the sense we we tend to um, in history reject the idea of facts. Um, 
because all uh, all what we what we instead talk about is evidence, and all evidence comes through us through human perception, and human perception has flaws, and therefore um, there's uh, I mean if if you take for instance a an event uh, what evidence do we have of that event we have evidence perhaps in um uh you know in in uh, government papers uh diaries etc cetera, etc cetera. all of these are recorded by human beings uh and and therefore flaws of perception are built into them and so we tend not to think about uh really about historical truth or we tend not to to um to put forth the idea of historical truth what we intend, instead uh, tend to do is um, we concentrate on argument and evidence-based argument, always being aware that that evidence has flaws which we need to be aware of. Um, and so uh, I think that itself, it relates to the earlier question, is, is one of the great difficulties with history is that it's, um, it's fluid. Um, history changes according to uh, uh, who we are, um, you know, uh, our gender, our our race, our ethnicity, our politics, uh, our age, etc., all has an effect upon how we look on the at the past. So, so what do you think is the best that we can hope for? Then is it just sort of overwhelming evidence? I suppose the best we can hope for is honesty. Um, is is that we won't. Um, uh, intentionally try to, um, to cook the historical record uh, for political purposes. Um, that's the ideal, and that's an ideal that very, is very seldom reached. So do you think that experts in history should have more prominence in discussions around society and where it's going then? I do. I do. I, I, I am appalled by um, how ignorant people are about the past and how often the past is used um, for ulterior purposes, um, manipulated. Uh, I, um, I think that uh, historians should be more involved. I th I'm, I'm disappointed that they aren't, and they aren't partly because they're not asked enough. Um, their opinions are tend to be rejected, or um, or not even sought. Um, I think they're also the absence is also their own fault because they're not put, tending not to put themselves forward. A classic example is the fact that his uh, professional historians continually complain and bitch and moan about the kinds of history that is produced by Hollywood. Um, you know, someone like Oliver Stone, for instance, uh, is arguably the most influential historian of the 20th century because if you count how many people view his films, um, yet he, he produces a history for his own political purpose, which is a very manipulative history. Yet um, historians simply sit, sit back with a rather snide attitude and say, uh, you know, he's he's a terrible historian, and this is this is appalling. Uh, instead of entering the fray and challenging it. 
So it's sort of like people need to meet halfway on this, really. I think so. I think I think that's part of what I was saying about that historians need to have a much more public profile, not just sit back and and hurl abuse at the attempts at history that are made in the public arena. Okay, so I, I think you'll probably have answered a little bit of this, but you've offered now 14 books, I believe, on various topics from life in the 60s to the moon landing to World War One, Britain. So what is it that motivates you to write a book on the subject? You know, why not just run a lecture course for your students? I, I suppose um, the reason, there's two reasons you, I personally do this. Um, one is I think that, um, I mean, A.J.P. Taylor, the famous uh, historian of, 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 you know, the 19th and 20th century, uh, an enormously prolific historian and also a man who I admire because he had a very public profile. And he always said that he wrote books um, firstly because he wanted to find out. Um, and he, and, and I, I, I was struck by that because um, that's sort of what's happened with me too. When I would start to write a book, um, I didn't know a lot about the topic. I thought I did, but I didn't. Um, and it's in the process of writing it that I found out so much. And, and that process of discovery is in a way rather like a process of discovery that you might have in physics, you know, that you find out things and it, isn't this amazing? Um, so that's wonderful. It's a, it's a great experience. Um, the other reason that I think that, that books have an importance as opposed to say a lecture series is because there's a certain permanence to them. Um, they're easier. They're easier to disseminate. Um, people do buy books. They keep them on their shelves, um, and they have a. a it, it is. Um, it's not the best way to communicate with the public. Mm -hmm. uh, probably film and and what we're doing now is a better way, um, but. Uh, it, it, does have a, it does have a certain permanence uh, which outlasts um, film or, or podcasts or the, those sorts of yeah. things. Yeah, okay. So which of your, I don't know if you'll be able to say, but which of your books are you most proud of having offered and what is it about? I would say, um, I, I would say my book on the atom bomb, actually. Um, I'm partly proud of it because that was... Um, it, it was my first real attempt to cross over from um, writing textbooks or writing academic monographs into writing books um, uh, for what they call the trade market. In other words, the, the, the outside public, pu uh, public history. Uh, and, and that's an, for a historian in, or an academic historian, that's quite a challenge because you, you want to to write in a way that, that the public will read and want to buy your book uh, and understand it, but you also don't want to compromise your academic principles. And so it's a, it's a trade-off between those things and trying to maintain those standards is, 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 is a challenge. And I think I did it mm -hmm. um, uh, because it was, the book sold and it also won prizes within academia. So um, I thought that was good. I also was proud of it because I actually uh, had, to, had to teach myself 
very elementary atomic physics. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I won't say I'm an expert in that by any means, but I, I, was, I am able to explain um, to my students and to people who read my book, you know, uh, E equals MC squared and how it's important and why it's important and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Well, congratulations on the uh, the prizes and the yeah. sailing. What's the name of that book? Sorry, that's um, the bomb a life. Yeah, by yeah. Jerry DeGroote. Yes, and it's it, what it does is it it. I tried to approach it as I mean when I say the bomb a life, it, it's it's that's precisely what I mean. It is a biography of the bomb. The 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 bomb takes on a a character, um, and has a has an almost physical uh, human presence uh, through the period from you know uh, the beginning of the 20th century right to the to the present so are there any other academic projects that you want to get involved in now that, that you're retired does it give you more more time or freedom to do different research I'm I'm not going to write any books anymore uh, and I, I've made oh well and I hope I hope I hold myself to that because I, I think that um, the I've done that, and I I don't think that there's any more adventures down that road. Um, and do you mean just like popular history books, or would you write a different type of book? I what I what I would I I, I will I think my career as a as a writer and a communicator, the form that it will take in future will be um, doing a little bit of what I already do, which is I review books for the Times, um, history books, and I hope to continue to do that because I enjoy that, and it's a, it's a lovely little challenge. I write about reviews of, of, on subjects that I know very little about. And what I would also like to do is the kind of thing that we're doing now, because uh, I, I think one of the most exciting developments of the last 10 years is, um, is the way, way in which young people have um, created, in effect, a new art form, which is the podcast. Um, and, uh, and there is an enormous amount of talent out there on all sorts of subjects, you know, from true crime, through um, uh, cooking, through absolutely everything. Uh, and there's so much opportunity, and um, and I I just I like the whole um, the whole format of it because it's precisely what I have always wanted to be um, as a historian, which is someone that that gets out there and communicates with people, and it for me it seems to me uh, the best combination of of communication, entertainment, and information. Well, I hope our listeners think the same. Yeah. <laughs> um, so moving on to some more general questions, what's something that you miss about your student days? What do I miss about my student days? Mm -hmm. um, uh, yes, that, that's a, something that happened a long time ago. Not a lot, actually. <laughs> I, I certainly don't miss at all being a... Um, a postgrad, I, I, being a, a postgrad at Edinburgh was was uh, one of the worst three years of my life. Um, it's a, an incredibly lonely pursuit, going to the library all day and working on a very specialized topic that you um, you can't really even talk to anyone about because uh, 
within a few weeks, you know more about that topic than anywhere one else on earth. Um, and, uh, and it's so intense and it's such a lonely pursuit. So I don't miss that. Um, and, and I look back on un undergraduate, and a lot of people look back on their undergraduate years and it's this, this, this kind of golden period. Um, and, and for me, it, it, yeah, it was, it was okay. You know, it was, uh, you know, we, we had a lot of parties and this was the, you know, this was the seventies. And so we were into, you know, uh, the kinds of, it was, of things that, you know, kids in the seventies were into. Um, but I, I just, there was so much I didn't know, you know, and, um, and my, I think, Naivety and immaturity very often caused uh, pain. Pain, yes, I suppose. So it's, I think it's just much nicer um, being older and being, um, being mature, I, I hope, um, and, and being a little bit more sure of myself. Uh, than I was back then. So having confidence from that life experience. Yeah, and I see this. I see with this with my kids, um, and I see this with my students. Um, I, it's it's hard being that age and also having to cope with the enormous pressures that are on you, and the particularly that are on you at a very good university. Um, uh, and I, I see what they go through, and they they uh, suffer from depression and anxiety and and um, all sorts of neuroses and and um, and it's uh, it's sad to see. Yeah. So, what's the subject that you struggled with as an undergraduate student? I don't know if in history you need to take every subject that you study in going on. Well, yes, um, I struggled with maths, which is unfortunate because I went to university to study maths. And, um, and maths is one of this, these subjects that it, um, it's cumulative. Mm -hmm. you, you build on what you learned before. And I think also because it is cumulative that everyone... Um, who's good at it reaches, or not everyone, but uh, but quite a few people that are who think they are good at it, reach. Um, a, they find a bridge too far. That that is the limit of their understanding, uh, and no amount of good teaching um, or hard work will solve that problem, and and so. I ran into a brick wall uh, in, in my first year in math as an undergraduate, and, I, and it, was, it was quite unsettling to discover that I actually wasn't really very good at something that I'd been extremely good at in high school. Um, and so I had to completely rethink my life plan, and that's when I decided uh, to become a historian instead. But you did it. You managed to, to bounce back, obviously. So is there anything that you'll miss from being a, a history professor? I, th I think the thing that I'll miss the most is the students. And, 
And I try not to remind myself that they're not parts of my life anymore. Um, a few weeks ago, I had, uh, we, we would every year have about 20 students over to the house for Thanksgiving dinner. And this year, I had the students um, that I taught last year who were my honor students. So we had about uh, 16 students over, and it was wonderful seeing them. Uh, it makes you feel young to be involved in uh, the lives of, of uh, incredibly intelligent and talented and, and vivacious uh, students. And that's been my life. And it was quite sad for me to have that, that Thanksgiving dinner because that, those were the, the last students I knew or I got to know. And, and so now I have no more students to invite next year. Um, and, and, I'll, and I will miss that very much. Um, I'll miss that much. I, none of the other stuff I really will miss. I will not miss marking. I will not miss uh, staff meetings. I will not miss the uh, incredibly intensive and nerve-wracking research culture, which every five years leads up to the REF. Um, uh, but the students I'll miss. So could you tell us maybe about like any of your proudest achievements from the, the course of your career? Again, it goes back to, um, to teaching. I'm, I'm much more proud of, of the fact that I have had an impact on people's lives. Um, I'm much more proud of that than I am of, of any of those 14 books. Um, I'm proud of the fact that on, on Facebook, I have probably 60 or 70% of my friends are former students, mm -hmm. some of whom I taught 35 years ago. Um, and they still want to remain in touch with me. Um, that means a lot to me. Um, and it all was brought home to me last, la, uh, last May uh, when I had my last tutorials and seminars. Um, and there was this outpouring of, of um, emotion, gratitude. Um, and, and these wonderful letters from students about you know, the effect I'd had on their lives. And that, that meant... In, a huge amount to me. So, um, so that's what I'm proud of. In a more specific way, I'm proud of the fact that I, I invented a module um, at St. Andrews, which is the only module of its type in any um, school of history in Britain. And that was that instead of doing um, a final year dissertation, which is a a rather boring and a very formulaic exercise uh, in collecting evidence and writing this, you know, 20,000 word piece. I uh, struggled to, to push through an option which would allow students to do an aspect of public history. So they could make film documentaries, they could do podcasts, they um, could do uh, uh, one, uh, one student did a decided to go on a uh, pilgrimage and and did a kind of um, video diary of this. Uh, another student did a graphic novel. She was a great um, 
uh, illustrator. She did a graphic novel on it on the Chinese famine. Um, so we've had all kinds of aspects of public history, and but in particular these these film documentaries, which were um, which were phenomenal in terms of the the the, the technical skill combined with with the um, the quality of history that went into them. And I was very proud of that. So what stereotypes do you come up against as a humanities academic? Do any of them carry merit or, or are there stereotypes that you take issues with? I think the most common stereotype is that we are, um, we live in an ivory tower and we don't really understand how the, the real world works. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that we are, in, we intentionally isolate ourselves from the real world. Um, and, and I think that stereotype exists uh, because it's, it's, it's rooted in a truth. Uh, not enough of us do actually um, engage with the real world. But do you think that's getting better? Uh, no, I don't actually. I think it's getting worse. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I mentioned A.J.P. Taylor. Um, uh, I think when I started, there was um, partly because there wasn't the emphasis upon research. I think there was um, a, a greater tendency to um, to to engage with the real world, um, and there were uh, simply because uh, it's enjoyable to do so. And um, uh, and I think that one effect of this uh, in very intense research culture is. Uh, is again, as I've said many times, is this, is this uh, specialization which tends to um, detach us from, from ordinary people. And do you have a favorite history conspiracy theory? Um, yeah, I have. A, I, I, I do. Um, I, th I suppose, I mean, I grew up with the, the, the you know, um, Kennedy assassination and all the conspiracy theories related to that. Um, and some of these have some merit and some of these are completely bizarre. I used to have on my, on my wall of my office um, a, um, a, f a kind of spoof article which argued that... Um, that Kennedy was shot by Elvis because Elvis was in love with Marilyn Monroe. And I, I you know, so that's been fascinating to watch. Um, but I, I think my favorite is actually the, the, the moon one. Um, the fact that the whole moon, uh, all the moon missions uh, were staged just because it is so completely ridiculous. Mm. Um, and uh, and the fact that it it yet the fact that it can survive and this argument that they could have faked this, well, if they would have faked this, why would they then fake it six times? Um, and and it, it involves uh, hundreds of thousands of people who were involved in these projects who have subsequently remained completely quiet about it. None of them have spoken out and said we fake this. So. Uh, and, but I think that's an illustration of, of the way 
as societies, uh, we are attracted to these conspiracy mm. theories. Um, there's this, I think it's, just, it's a certain psychological malaise that explains why uh, conspiracy theories exist. Mm-hmm. But it does give those people amazing mental gymnastics skills. It does. Very it creative does. solutions. And it's, it's all about creating an alternative world that is more in line with the way you would like the world to be. Plus, it is all based upon this intense paranoia toward the world, uh, which I think is itself um, an outgrowth of the 60s and the 70s when people lost faith in politicians. Mm. So um, in terms of hobbies, what are some of the things that you like to get up to in your spare time? Well, I like, um, I like to cook. I'm, I'm, I like to say that I'm a very good uh, cook and baker, um, I am. Uh, a, I, I love to gar- uh, I love my garden. I love flowers. Um, I so I would be have much more time for those sorts of things. And I also like to build things. Um, I my father was a carpenter, so I kind of grew up knowing how to make things with wood. And um, so I've. Uh, I love the physicality of it. I love to be able to say that, you know, I laid that oak floor um, or, you know, I made that deck outside, um, those kinds of things. Um, uh, I, I, I suppose also because I, it, it puts me in touch with my working class roots, uh, which is important for me. And is there a particular project that you're most proud of? Y- yes. I mean, I, uh, at my house, I, um, I, I built, I built a... Um, a deck outside, which uh, if you saw it, it, you'd see what a challenge it is because it's uh, there is there is no right angle anywhere on where it has to be. It fills up a space, which is uh, a kind of um, a, a, a geometry uh, expert's nightmare, uh, and and yet I fit it all in. I like big things. I like big things because, partly because I love to hit large nails with a hammer. Um, and uh, I'm not as good at, at the fine stuff. I, I couldn't make the kind of furniture that you'd be proud enough to put inside. But I love to make things that you can, your mistakes aren't, aren't all that apparent. So are there any more like DIY projects you've got in mind now? Um, yes, uh, tons of them, nothing really specific, but I, I, ever since retiring, I've kind of looked around my house and, and, and thought, oh my gosh, I haven't really done enough for the last 20 years and things are looking a little bit shabby. So that's going to take up a lot of my time. Um, I'd also like to, to kind of move into things that I've previously been frightened of. Uh, in particular, um, plumbing. I'd like to start to to know how to put pipes together without them um, leaking. Well, best of luck with that. Yeah, it's a, it's a risky one to start off on, I guess. Yeah. So um, I feel it would be remiss of me to not mention that you have a pet Keyshond who has a really fantastic Instagram. So can, can we share that with people? Yes. Uh, I, you know, it, it is one of my... Um, knocks to my own pride is the fact that I have um, I've worked at, at 
in St. Andrews for 35 years and had a what I thought was quite a large profile in the town that students knew me and stuff. And yet nowadays I walk down the street and people don't, they don't recognize me, but they recognize my dog. Um, they'll say hello to Humphrey. Um, and I have no idea who they are. And it's apparently because, well, partly because he is an incredibly gorgeous uh, dog. I have to agree. Um, and also because he um, he has that Instagram account. So he's not just famous in St. Andrews. He's famous around the world. Um, uh, and so to, to walk down the street and for people to say, hello, Humphrey, and uh, and not who I know who I am is very humbling. Um, but one of the nice things about it is that Humphrey loves to go to the brew co um, and sit on the floor um, right in the middle by the door so that people have to walk around him and stop to pet him. Um, and one thing it has done, I call him my wing dog um, because it's it's allowed me to get to know people who would ordinarily not remotely be interested in me, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, stopped to talk to me because of my dog. Do you know the, the Instagram handle for Humphrey? Uh, it is Humphrey Keys. Uh, so it's Humphrey and then K-E-E-S. Uh, and that's uh, obviously for Keyson. And um, we, we, some people pronounce it, Americans tend to pronounce it Kishond. Kies, um, the proper Dutch way is Keishond. Um, it's a Dutch barge dog, uh, which I find fascinating uh, that these dogs were um, in the past used to guard barges uh, on the canals in Amsterdam, in which explains their incredible coat. Um, because I can never, I can't imagine Humphrey ever guarding anything because he <laughs> loves everyone who comes up to him. So I suppose the only way is if a thief came onto a barge, he would distract him by loving him to death. <laughs> Very adorable, bad guard dog. Um, that's the same as my pet. Um, so is there anything else that you're looking forward to doing in your retirement as well? Now? One of the things I want to do is I want to learn Spanish, actually. I have a house in Spain. And, um, and I'm ashamed the, that I, I can't, I've had it for 12 years, I love Spain, and I, I'm ashamed that I, I am so rubbish at speaking Spanish. Um, and that's partly because I think um, uh, I'm just not very good at learning languages. Um, I, can, I can memorize vocabulary, I can, I can you know, learn um, rules of grammar, but I'm, I still have difficulty speaking. Um, so that's one thing I want to do. Um, whether I get time to do it, I'll see. But yeah, I'm absolutely off all the languages as well, so best of luck. Um, so moving on to the quickfire round, so you can sort of blast for these. But if you want to expand on your answer, feel free to do so. So do you have a favorite music genre or a favorite song? Well, I... Uh, I, I Yes, I grew up um, in listening to music in the 60s and 70s. Um, I still think the 70s music is better than the 60s. Um, I'm, at the same time, I'm a massive Dylan fan. But in terms of, of um, sort of 70s kind of prog rock, um, uh, traffic, uh, low spark of high-heeled boys. 
and probably no one will know what that is, but go and listen to it. It is absolutely brilliant. And it contains the wonderful line, the man in the suit has just bought a new car with the profit he made on your dreams, which is a wonderful epitaph on the 1960s. And do you have a favorite non-academic book? And I, I guess not one of your ones, we should um, possibly qualify. Yeah. Um, oh, a classic, The Great Gatsby, is one of the few books that I, novels that I, uh, I read over and over again. I've probably read it four or five times now. Um, in terms of a not classic, a recent novel, um, Emily uh, St. John Mandel, Station Eleven, um, a, a, an apocalyptic novel which is is just still makes managers to make you feel good. Which sounds a bit of an odd combo because uh, most of the time that's not the case. So, as a historian, if you could visit any time and any place, where would you choose? Yeah, that's an easy one. I would be on the grassy knoll uh, in Dallas, Texas, uh, in November 1963, and because I'd known. I'd know that Kennedy was going to get shot. I'd be looking around to see if there was indeed a second shooter. And finally put that conspiracy theory to bed. So do you prefer to holiday in the hot or in the cold? Hot. And do you prefer cats or dogs? Um, that's, yeah. I have to say uh, dogs because of Humphrey, but I... I actually, up until, Humphrey's my first dog as an adult. Um, up until that time I had uh, cats and I was a mad cat fan. Um, but now I just love dogs, yeah. Are you a, a total convert then? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think dogs, my daughter who who runs the, um, the uh, Humphrey Instagram site said that dogs are, 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 are like angels, you know, that they've been sent down to, to make the world better. They do do that. So what's your favorite pub in St. Andrews? Uh, it has to be the Bruco because that's Humphrey's pub. Humphrey's favorite pub as well. Are you a morning person or a night owl? I'm, um, I'm actually uh, a little bit of both, but more a morning person. Um, when I was uh, uh, yeah, maybe 20 years ago when my, when my son was born, he was a, uh, the, one of those babies that woke up at um, between 4 and 5 in the morning. Uh, and so my wife and I used to, um, to kind of switch off who looked after him in the morning. And I, he now sleeps wonderfully well to 10, 11 o'clock uh, in the morning. Um, but I still wake up at 4 or 5. Still dealing with the collateral of that. So what's a snack food that you couldn't live without? I suppose nuts, cashew nuts. Cashew nuts. So this is the uh, final question of the interview, so please take time to, to expand on your answer. But what would you say to students or people who are passionate about their work but are worried about its relevance or utility? I would borrow the Nike phrase, just do it. Um, I, in my long experience as a teacher, I have seen too many students who were forced, usually by their parents, to do subjects that they weren't interested in, but which they were, they believed or led to believe um, were useful or would get them a good career. And they were miserable. Uh, in particular, students who were inclined to do, to, the, to do the arts, but ended up 
doing management or economics. And it, it pained me to see that. And my own feeling is that you should do something which you love, because if you love it, you're going to do well in it. Uh, and if you do well in it, someone's going to, you're, you're still going to find a job. Um, you'll be passionate about whatever you do. You might not find a job in that subject, um, but I think having studied that subject and the, the kind of transferable skills that that subject will encourage, you'll be fine. So I think go for it, go for it, yeah. Okay, so this has been our interview with Professor Jerry DeGroote. Thanks very much. Thank you, it's my pleasure. You've been listening to Insight, the University of St. Andrews Student Physics Society's podcast. I was your host, Samuel Lavery. Thanks to the wonderful academics of St. Andrews. Join us in the future as we learn more of the people making our education. This podcast was produced by myself and our podcast producer, Sabrina Keating. To find out more about the Physics Society and what we do, please find us on Facebook or Google St. Andrews Physics Society for our website. Goodbye.